Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet em, greet em, treat em, and street em. Today's date is January 3rd, 2023, and I'm your skeptical host, Dennis Wren. The title of today's podcast is I Can't Feel My Face When I Have Bell Palsy, But Will Steroids Help? And our guest skeptic today is Dr. Jennifer Harmon, who is an MD, PhD at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. She is a board-certified pediatric neurologist and, forever the overachiever, completing yet another fellowship in medical genetics. Welcome to SGM Peds, Jenny. Thank you for having me, Dennis. And as an ever-pedantic neurologist, I would like to point out that despite what we're talking about in our opening theme music, the facial nerve, which is the nerve affected in Bell's palsy, actually controls the movement of the face, not the sensation, except for two exceptions, taste to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue and sensation to a portion of the external auditory meatus, lateral pinna, and mastoid. Well, you know, I'm actually very glad you provided those details because that's why I'm so excited to have you on the show to lend your expertise as a child neurologist. I think you got a case for us? I sure do. A nine-year-old girl shows up at your emergency department with unilateral facial paralysis. Her parents noticed that one side of her face looked abnormal when she woke up in the morning. She has no other medical conditions and has not had any recent fevers, ear pain, or trauma. On exam, she is alert and active, but you note that the entire left side of her face does not move when you ask her to smile or raise her eyebrows. The remainder of her exam is unremarkable. You make a clinical diagnosis of Bell palsy, and the parents ask you, is there anything you can give her to help her recover faster? Bell palsy is a common cause of unilateral facial, that seventh nerve palsy in children. And the differential for this presentation can include trauma, otitis media, viral infections, brain lesions or stroke, and acute leukemia. If the seventh nerve palsy is known to be caused by herpes virus, it is called Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. It is important to perform a careful history and physical before ultimately arriving at the diagnosis of Bell palsy. While many children spontaneously recover, the clinical manifestations of Bell palsy may significantly impact a child functionally and emotionally. And there have been studies in adults regarding the treatment of Bell palsy that have demonstrated that treating with corticosteroids provides significant benefit. That's a number needed to treat of 10. And the SGEM covered the use of steroids and antivirals for Bell palsy in SGEM number 14. Unfortunately, the data for the use of steroids in treating pediatric Bell palsy is still lacking. So Jenny, what's the clinical question we're trying to answer today? The clinical question is, does prednisolone improve the proportion of children with Bell palsy with complete recovery at one month? And what's our reference? Our reference is Babel al. Efficacy of Prednisolone for Bell palsy in Children, a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, multicenter trial, or the Bell-PIC trial, in Neurology 2022. Okay, let's move on to our PICO question. So first off, what was the population? Our population was children 6 months to 18 years presenting to multiple emergency departments in Australia with Bell palsy diagnosed by a senior clinician with onset of symptoms less than 72 hours prior to evaluation. 
And there were a lot of exclusion criteria, so we'll just list those out in the show notes for you. But what was the intervention? Prednisolone, one milligram per kilogram with a max of 50 milligrams for 10 days with no taper. And the comparison? Placebo. And what were the outcomes they were looking at? The primary outcome was complete recovery of facial function at one month defined by a house Brackman score of one. And this is a scale of one to six, with one being completely normal function and six being complete paralysis. And we'll have an image of this grading system in our show notes. And what about their secondary outcomes, Jenny? Their secondary outcomes were recovery of facial function described as a house Bragman score of one at three and six months, recovery of facial function defined as the Sunnybrook scale score of 100 at one, three, and six months, self-reported or parent-reported pain at one, three, and six months, presence of synkinesis or autonomic dysfunction at one, three, and six months, ongoing palsy symptoms, date of resolution of facial weakness, emotional and functional well-being at one, three, and six months, and the final was adverse outcomes. And what kind of trial was this? This was a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized superiority trial. And what were the author's conclusions? In children with Bell palsy, prednisolone does not significantly change recovery of complete facial function at one month. However, the study lacked the precision to exclude an important harm or benefit from prednisolone. Okay, and let's move on to our quality checklist. First question for you, Jenny. Did the study population include or focus on those in the emergency department? Yes. And were these patients adequately randomized? Yes. Was the randomization process concealed? Yes. And were the patients analyzed in the groups to which they were randomized? Yes. An intention-to-treat analysis was performed on all patients recruited in each group. Were these studied patients recruited consecutively? Unsure. And were the patients in both groups similar with respect to prognostic factors? So generally, yes. However, there were fewer children in the 6-month to 12-year category in the prednisolone group than in the placebo group. More children in the prednisolone group presented at time greater than 48 hours. The median age of children in the prednisolone group was slightly older compared to the placebo group. And were all the participants, including patients, clinicians, outcome assessors, unaware of the group allocation? Yes. They did break the research protocol in a few select circumstances, but we think that those were warranted. These circumstances included one patient who received 20 doses of study medication, one patient diagnosed with leukemia, and one patient who subsequently developed bilateral Bell palsy. Yeah, I think those are pretty good reasons to break research protocol in that case. Do you think all groups were treated equally except for the intervention? Yes. And was follow-up complete? Yes. Do you think they considered all patient-important outcomes? Yes. They were fairly comprehensive in terms of functional outcomes as well as subjective patient-reported outcomes. And do you think the treatment effect was large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Unfortunately, no. The study was initially powered to detect 12% difference based on adult data. However, it did not meet its recruitment goals, and the study was underpowered. Additionally, the confidence intervals were fairly wide. Okay, and our last question, do you think there were any financial conflicts of interest? No. The drug and placebo were donated by a pharmaceutical company. 
but this company did not play a role in study design, execution, analysis, or manuscript writing. Okay, let's move on to our results. So there were 187 children randomized with 94 to the prednisolone group and 93 to the placebo group. The median age was 9.9 years. Approximately 52% were female, and the median time to treatment was 24 hours, with the median house Brackman score at time of enrollment of 4. Jenny, can you give us the key results from this study? In children with Bell palsy, the vast majority recover without treatment. For the primary outcome, at one month, 49% of patients receiving prednisolone had complete recovery compared to 58% in the placebo group. And with regards to the secondary outcomes, we'll put in a chart in our show notes that demonstrate the percent recovery by group at three months and six months. But what else did they find? So they found that synkinesis and pain were very low at all time points. Emotional well-being scores were not reported. And there were no serious adverse events. The most common adverse events were behavioral change and increased appetite. Speaking of increased appetite, I am feeling a little bit hungry for some nerdy talk. Are you ready? Dennis, I'm a neurologist and a geneticist. I did not choose the nerdy life. The nerdy life chose me. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Well, here we go. Let's talk nerdy. Our first point here is that this study was underpowered. There's a lot of things I really liked about this study. It had those great words like double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized. But sadly, and the authors acknowledge this, it was underpowered because they ran out of funding. And although they did not find evidence that early treatment with prednisolone improves complete recovery, as we mentioned before, the confidence intervals are pretty wide. So we need to interpret these results cautiously. You want to talk about our second point about the outcomes? Sure. So the primary outcome was recovery from symptoms at one month. But is one month an appropriate follow-up time for primary outcome? We see that at the one-month time frame, a higher percentage of children in the placebo group recovered compared to the children in the prednisolone group. However, when we look at the three-month and six-month follow-up, this changes to where there is a higher percentage of children in the prednisolone group who have symptom recovery. Again, I think we need to acknowledge that this is limited by the wide confidence intervals. My next point is, in patients with illnesses that can lead to lifelong facial differences, emotional well-being is an important factor and patient-oriented outcome. Our face is important as part of our social interaction, so facial dysfunction may have a significant impact on a child's self-esteem and confidence. We were really, really thrilled to see that it was included and listed in the secondary outcomes, but it was not mentioned at all in the results. And moreover, six months may not be significant follow-up time to determine the true emotional impact to that child and the family. And Dennis, I just want to add one more thing. Often when we are giving a critical look at papers, we need to evaluate if something that is statistically significant is clinically significant. However, this is an interesting case where something that is not statistically significant may actually have clinical significance that is not well picked up in the paper. I totally, totally agree, Jenny. All right, let's move on to our third point here, the exclusion criteria. 
There was a long list of exclusion criteria for this study. And of the 869 patients assessed for eligibility, 78% were not enrolled. And we acknowledge that some of the exclusion criteria were appropriate, such as the contraindications to prednisolone therapy or oncological diagnosis or any signs pointing to alternative diagnosis like Ramsey-Hunt, facial trauma, or otitis media. But the criteria that I am slightly uncomfortable with is when the patients who are excluded based on concern about ability to comply with study protocol. This seems like a fairly subjective exclusion criteria that excluded 25 patients. And in a study that was already underpowered, it's unclear how these excluded patients would have impacted the results. Jenny, you want to talk about the fourth point here? Sure. So our fourth point is about inter-rater reliability of the scales that were used in this paper. The primary outcome for recovery was assessed using the House-Brackman scale. The final grade was determined by clinicians from multiple specialties, including neurology, otolaryngology, pediatrics, and emergency medicine. It is unknown how reliably they agree with one another on the grading. Previous research suggests that the inter-rater reliability may vary. It is unclear how discrepancies in the grading may impact the primary outcome. Our last point is the differential diagnoses for facial nerve palsy. And I'll be honest, this paper made us a little bit nervous in its discussion of the wide range of other etiologies that should be considered before arriving at the diagnosis of Bell palsy. And this included some scary stuff like acute leukemia, in which we don't want to accidentally give corticosteroids. And one of the things that was notably absent was the consideration of Lyme disease. Jenny, you and I practice in a Lyme endemic area, so I feel like I have to include that in my differential diagnosis for a patient with facial paralysis. And there have also been studies to suggest steroid use in Lyme disease-associated facial paralysis are associated with worse long-term outcomes. You're a neurologist. Do you have any tips on how we can navigate this potential minefield? Should I be doing more workup in children presenting with what I believe to be Bell palsy? So all of the diagnoses that were mentioned in this paper may alter the risk-benefit ratio for treating with corticosteroids. The question of how corticosteroids impact Lyme disease-associated facial nerve palsy is currently being studied by a Swedish group. ED providers may want to consider a mild expansion in workup, such as including a CBC, to avoid usage in the vast minority of patients for whom steroids would be contraindicated. Ooh, another study in progress? Maybe we can convince you to join us and talk nerdy for that one. I would love to. Okay, okay. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, uh, can you comment on the author's conclusions compared to the SGM conclusion? Based on the data that are presented in this paper, we generally agree with the author's conclusions. While many children with Bell palsy may experience spontaneous resolution with no intervention, this study was underpowered. Corticosteroid therapy in pediatric Bell palsy may offer a clinical benefit of long-term symptom resolution and positively impact the child's emotional well-being. And what's the SGEM bottom line? So at the end of the day, the impact of corticosteroids in the treatment of pediatric Bell palsy is not known. And can you resolve the case for us? 
So in this case, we explain to the family that there are some data in adults to suggest that corticosteroids may improve the chances of a complete recovery from Bell palsy. You acknowledge that the evidence for corticosteroid therapy is limited in the pediatric population and that many children spontaneously recover. After reviewing the risks and benefits associated with treating their child with prednisolone, you and the family arrive at a shared decision to treat her with corticosteroids. And Jenny, how do we apply this clinically? So Bell palsy is a common cause of unilateral facial paralysis in children seen in the pediatric ED, and prednisolone is commonly used to help with symptom resolution. It may offer the potential benefit of long-term symptom resolution, although many children will spontaneously recover. The risks and benefits should be explained to the family to come to a shared decision. It is also important to consider a wide range of differential diagnoses in patients presenting with unilateral facial nerve palsy. And Jenny, what are you telling the patient and the family You've asked a fantastic question that I wish I knew a concrete answer to. For adults, there are some studies that would suggest treatment with corticosteroids may improve likelihood of complete recovery from symptoms. However, the data surrounding the use of corticosteroids to treat Bell palsy in children are limited. Many children recover spontaneously without any kind of intervention. Treatment with prednisolone may increase the chance that a patient will fully recover in the long term. The most common side effects of treatment with corticosteroids are increased appetite and some behavioral changes. We can decide together what you would like to do. Awesome. Any last thoughts before we close out our episode? No, I think that was a pretty comprehensive look at this really interesting paper. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Harmon, for joining us on SGMPEDS. And before we say goodbye... Can you give us the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. 